Luke 8, 22. Now on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported it to them. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon possessed had been made well, and all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. And he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Father, today there's great hope in this passage. There's great hope in your Son who has all power in heaven and in earth. We pray, God, that you would speak to us with hope. We need it for ourselves. We need it for those we love. Give us hope in Jesus now, we pray. Amen. I have to admit that I am a bit more like the disciples in verse 24 than I would like to be. I feel it especially every time I'm on an airplane. And particularly when the pilot's voice scratches over the intercom and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. As we pass over the state of Missouri, we're going to be encountering some slight turbulence. So please remain in your seats and keep your seatbelts fastened until we turn the fastened seatbelt sign off. Slight turbulence. 
They always call it, don't they? I'm a little bit afraid of heights, and so when I'm seven miles suspended above the earth, there's no turbulence at all that feels slight to me. And therefore, therefore, I find myself crying out to Jesus, just like these disciples did. Silently, of course, in my seat. But I find myself often on the plane saying, Oh, Lord, I don't mind dying, but I really don't want to die in a plane crash. It's number two on my list of the worst ways to go. Jesus... We're perishing. Here we are 37,000 feet above the earth with nothing underneath us. This isn't normal. Please, please get this bucket of bolts to the ground safely. I'm not embellishing that at all. I literally pray like that on nearly every flight. And while I'd like to believe that the fact that I pray reveals some level of faith, at least I'm praying after all, I also find myself challenged by the story of the disciples and the storm on Lake Galilee. Did they really think that just because the sea had gotten rough, Jesus had forgotten about them? And do I really think just because the air around the plane has gotten turbulent that Jesus' hands are any less in control of me and the pilot and the airplane than they were five minutes before when the sailing was smooth? Sometimes, apparently, I do think that way even if just for a moment. And I wonder if Jesus isn't in those moments looking at me with a knowing compassion and saying, oh, court, where is your faith? Son, I love you, and I'm thrilled that when you're afraid, you call out to me. That's what you should do. But don't forget that I was in control all along. I was even in control before you cried out. I haven't forgotten about you, not for a moment. What about you? Are there circumstances in your life that cause you to panic? That cause you to forget, even just for a moment, that God really is in control? The instinct that the disciples had, and the instinct that I hope you have to cry out, Master, Master, is a right instinct. But remember that even as you cry out that way, your Heavenly Father knew what you needed before you asked Him, according to Matthew chapter 6. Remember that not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father, Jesus says in Matthew 10. So then, he says, do not fear, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. Remember that even when the sea is choppy, even when the air is turbulent and the fastened seatbelt sign is on, even when the finances aren't right, even when the phone rings at 2 o'clock in the morning, Jesus hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't stepped out for lunch. He hasn't left you alone. He is always exercising and never relinquishing his authority over heaven and earth. Authority. That's really what this passage in Luke 8 is all about. Jesus' authority over circumstances and over people and even over the spirit world. And if we can this morning just get our minds and hearts wrapped around the authority of Jesus, if we can be convinced this morning from Scripture that all authority in heaven and in earth really has been given unto Jesus, as Matthew 28 says it has, then we will have a ready and right answer to the question, where is your faith? So, think with me for the next several minutes about Jesus' authority. I believe you would find it an interesting study just to work your way through the remainder of Luke chapter 8, jotting down all the various beings 
and circumstances over which Jesus demonstrates his authority. This morning we're limiting ourselves to verses 22 through 39. But if you moved beyond today's passage, you would see in verses 40 through 56 Jesus' authority over sickness as he heals a hemorrhaging woman. And you would see his authority even over the grave as he raises a little girl from the dead. But even as we confine ourselves to verses 22 through 39 this morning, I think you'll see four striking examples of the authority of Jesus. And I want you to note them with me. First, Jesus' authority over storms. Verses 22 through 25. Jesus' authority over storms. I've already thought briefly about this, about Jesus' calming of the storms. But in case there's any doubt in anyone's mind, in case anyone might be tempted to ascribe the calmed seas on that day to natural causes, in case, in other words, you might be tempted to think, well, perhaps this quote-unquote storm was really just a few gusts of wind and a few small waves that just happened to die down when Jesus prayed. In case any of that doubt is in your mind, just notice a few things with me. Notice verse 23 that it was a fierce gale of wind that blew up on the lake that day, so much so that the disciples began to be swamped and their little dinghy began to be in danger. The waves in verse 24 are described by Luke as surging and the disciples believe themselves to be perishing. And I point all these things out simply to say that this was no small miracle and to say that the sudden calm that fell upon the water that day clearly wasn't, as some people would like to believe, just the dying down of a normal sea breeze. It was lapping against the side of the boat and then it died out when Jesus prayed. That wasn't it. This is a serious storm. And even if we could give some natural explanation for the sudden instantaneous ceasing of the violent winds that wouldn't account for the sudden instantaneous ceasing of the violent waves, would it? Winds can cease immediately perhaps, but waves cannot. Unless there is such a thing as the supernatural. And so it is the supernatural precisely that we're seeing in this story. An event happened that day on Lake Galilee that can only be explained by divine intervention. And it happened, according to verse 24, at the command of Jesus of Nazareth. It had to be divine intervention, and Jesus of Nazareth made it happen. What does that tell us? Jesus is divine. Jesus is God himself made flesh. And Jesus has authority over storms. And surely the fact that Jesus calmed this storm should convince us that he has authority over all storms, indeed authority over nature in general. Not a storm blows up on the Lake of Galilee or in the Gulf of Mexico or 37,000 feet above the earth, which Jesus cannot still with a simple word. Not a dry spell blows in. Not a cold snap occurs. Not a deep blanket of snow comes across the city. Not an earthquake rattles the window panes apart from Jesus' authority. Indeed, even the fact that Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat is a demonstration of his authority. The disciples certainly couldn't sleep, could they? Neither would I. In fact, this past Saturday morning at 3 o'clock, as flight 1543 bounced to and fro across the show me state, I was wide awake. But Jesus, in an even more precarious situation, was, verse 23, asleep. 
so soundly, in fact, that the wind and the waves did not arouse him. He had to be physically woken up by his disciples in verse 24. Why was he able to sleep like that? Well, presumably because even as he slept, Jesus knew that he had everything under control. Even while his human body slumbered on the deck, he was still the sovereign God of the universe. And that's good to know. Sometimes when storms, whether literal or figurative, blow up in our lives, it seems for all the world like Jesus isn't doing anything about it. As though he's gone to sleep on us. But even then, when he seems to be doing nothing, he's not forgotten us. He hasn't put his earplugs in and settled in for a long, oblivious nap. No, Jesus always has things completely under control. Whether it is the sailboat on the Lake of Galilee or the 737 in the clouds or the cancer in your lymph nodes or your child in the hospital, Jesus is always completely in control. He has authority over the storms. At any moment, he can stop them for your good and his glory. And when he does not stop them, that too is for your eternal good and his glory. So we need to join Jesus on the deck of the boat. We need to rest easy because Jesus has authority over storms. Secondly, Jesus has authority over spirits. Authority over spirits, verses 26 through 33. When the boat landed on the other side of the lake, Jesus was confronted with a situation that was just as challenging as the storm he just stilled. He was met, verse 27, by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Why do I say this situation was more challenging or just as challenging as the surging of the waves on Lake Galilee? Well, because, at least according to conventional wisdom, people don't change. Isn't that the way the world tends to think? Here's a man who's completely off his rocker. This man just isn't just in need of some medication to calm him down. He isn't in need of setting up a weekly appointment with a counselor. This is a man possessed by demons, living in a graveyard, running around naked and screaming, and according to Mark chapter 5, gashing himself with rocks. This is a serious situation. And the townspeople looked at this man and just threw up their hands. What could they do with him? They couldn't do anything. All they could do, verse 29, was tie him down and hope that he didn't get loose and hurt anyone. And there are people like this today. Sad, disturbed people who, whether for demonic reasons or other reasons, spend their lives in and out of straitjackets, in and out of psych wards, and on and off of sedatives. And if you walked up to their caretakers and said to them, what's it going to take for you to get this guy to sit down, put some clothes on, and be in his right mind? They would probably say to you, I'd sooner try to be in charge of the weather than to try to make that happen. It's impossible. We put ourselves into Jesus' shoes. We can see what a challenging situation this appeared to be. Just as impossible and perhaps just as frightening and dangerous as the storms the disciples had just weathered. And yet, once again, Jesus simply speaks and all is well. Once again, Jesus demonstrates his authority, his ability to do the impossible. This time, his authority over the spirit world. 
And only Jesus has this kind of authority. Only Jesus can speak this way. He told his disciples on another occasion where they encountered a demon that some demons, Matthew 17, can only be cast out by fasting and prayer. Some cases apparently are so serious that a time of intense prayer and fasting has to occur before the person will be released. And surely if there was ever such a case, the Gerasene demoniac in Luke 8 would have been one. And yet Jesus, unlike his disciples, or you or I, did not need to fast or to pray in Luke 8. He could simply speak the word and a whole legion of demons would cower and flee. You see, demons are for real. Perhaps, in fact, that is one application we need to make from this story, that the spirit world is real. There truly is a real, personal devil who is out to destroy God's cause, and doubly so if he can wreak havoc on human beings in the process. And there really are demonic spirits who, though they aren't seen, are constantly at work in the world. But Jesus has absolute authority over those spirits. They listen when he commands. And all he has to do is say the word and they flee like frightened animals. So stay close to him. Cling to him when you face temptation or oppression or the fiery darts of doubt that Satan slings your way. Jesus has authority over spirits. And let me make one other application before we pass on to a third Subpoint. People really can and do change when they encounter Jesus. It doesn't always seem possible, and I will be the first to admit that whether the reasons are demonic or otherwise, some people seem to be beyond the realm of hope. Do you know anyone like that? Someone perhaps who is neck deep in the quicksand of Wicca or the occult. Or maybe for you, it's someone who's so mentally and emotionally disturbed that it seems like a waste of time to try to explain the gospel to them because they don't get it. Someone whose heart seems so hard that even the hammer that is the word of God wouldn't break it into pieces. Perhaps a homosexual friend. Perhaps a wealthy, carefree relative who has not a thought in the world about eternity. Whoever the impossible person is in your life, even if it's you. Hear this well. When a person truly encounters Jesus, when he unleashes his kind and benevolent power, when he speaks the word, even the most out-of-control sinner will find himself, verse 35, sitting down at the feet of Jesus and in his right mind, utterly redeemed. So do not give up hope on that person. Jesus has authority over spirits, both demonic and human. Number three, Jesus has authority over swine. Verse 32 and verse 33. Jesus has authority over swine. You may think that I added this third point to the sermon simply because I found another word that began with S. After all, what could I possibly say about these pigs and Jesus' authority over them? Well, there's not a lot to say, but there is one important point to be made, especially for our culture. Namely, if Jesus had performed this miracle in 21st century America, he'd likely have had all sorts of animal rights activists breathing down his neck before we get to chapter 9. 
Now, I'm all for treating animals humanely, and so is the Bible. Solomon says in Proverbs 12.10, A righteous man has regard for the life of his animal. And some of us perhaps need to take that saying to heart. But in the day in which we live, the danger is that we would fall off on the other side of the wagon. The danger is that many inhabitants of the Western world will become so enthralled with the protection of animals and the environment that they will run roughshod over the human race in order to do so. Not everyone, but it happens. This is partly the reason for the outcry in our world against overpopulation. There are some places where it's a problem, but there's an outcry in America about overpopulation. And this is the reason why many people look down on fellow human beings and say that they have too many kids. Because, quote, and I'm quoting the New York Times in an article that was written there, it's not good for the environment. And the upshot of that kind of thinking is social evils like abortion and euthanasia and sterilization and coerced family planning. Those things sound more and more plausible in a culture that puts animals and environment above human beings. What does this have to do with Luke 8? Well, simply that in Luke 8, a lot of pigs die. 2,000, according to the Gospel of Mark. Indeed, Jesus was responsible, according to verses 32 through 33, for the fact that 2,000 pigs died. He was the one who gave the demons permission to go into the swine and rush down the hill to their deaths. But why did he do it? Well, apparently, because the spiritual well-being of one individual man. Indeed, one of society's castaways was worth it. The well-being of one individual, no matter how seemingly useless that individual may be, is far more important than the well-being of a whole farm full of pigs. And you, Jesus said in Matthew 10, are worth far more than many sparrows. Am I speaking against animal rights? No, not for a moment. Am I anti-green? Not at all. In fact, I think that the environmentalists are saying some things that we need to hear and hear well. And I realize that what I'm saying this morning could be abused by human beings who convince themselves that human well-being is the same thing as human indulgence. All of those things are true, and I realize I could be misunderstood. And yet it must be said to our generation that mankind is the crown jewel of God's creative handiwork. And mankind deserves to be prized over the swine and the whales and the ash trees and the rainforests. And when we protect and prize the swine and the whales and the ash trees and the rainforests, which there are many reasons to do, the main reason ought to be, first of all, because those things contribute to the well-being of man. And the well-being of man brings about the glory of God. That's precisely how and why Jesus exercised his authority over these swine, for the good of one man. And we must learn in responsible, biblical ways to follow suit. Fourthly, Jesus has authority over souls. Over souls, verses 34 to 39. We've already seen that Jesus had authority to send the evil spirits out of this crazed man in the seaside cemetery. But we need also to notice that he has authority over the man himself. 
It wasn't simply that the demons left the man, but that he himself was also changed. In other words, Jesus didn't simply send away the demons and then leave the man lying there naked and stupefied. No, at one and the same time, Jesus both expelled the demonic powers and infused the man with a new source of life and motivation. He had authority both over the spirits and over the soul of the man. This fellow had been a madman, running to and fro between the tombs, yanking at the chains that they tied him down with. And now in verse 35, he was sitting down at the feet of Jesus, as calm as Lake Galilee had become just a few minutes earlier. He had been naked, and now he was clothed. He had been gashing himself with stones, and now he was in his right mind. So do you see what's happening here? It's not as though Jesus sent the demons away and then left the man to rehabilitate himself. Jesus did not, if you will, send the demons away and then leave the man with a self-help book to try to help him tackle his issues on his own. No. Jesus utterly redeemed this man. Jesus has authority over the hostile spirits and over the human soul. And what a perfect illustration this story is of the power of the gospel. When Jesus saves a man or a woman, he doesn't simply wipe out all the bad things. He doesn't simply erase our sin debts and kill off our sin natures. He does do those things, but he doesn't simply do those things and then leave us to pull up our own bootstraps and try to live right. No, he cancels our sin debts. He kills off our sin natures and they are dying slowly even as we breathe this morning. But then Jesus, in addition to those things, breathes new life into us. He sets us in our right mind. He changes us from the inside out. He doesn't just do away with the bad, but he infuses the good. And though the outward evidence of the change that Jesus makes is not always immediately evident, the inward change is real. And notice in verses 38 and 39 that Jesus not only has authority to change us, but he also has authority to command us. He has authority over our souls in that he can change us and in that he can command us. The freed demoniac, verse 38, had a good idea. Why don't I just go with you, Jesus? It would be a thrill to hear your liberating voice in person every single day for the rest of my life. So please, just let me travel with you. Let me come with the disciples. It's not a bad request. This is a quite good idea on a human plane. But Jesus had a better idea. Jesus had a better plan for this man. And Jesus had authority to command the man to follow Jesus' plan and not his own in verse 39. And that's significant. Jesus does not set us free from sin and Satan so that we can make our own way in the world. He doesn't set us free from sin and Satan so that we can set our own agenda, good and godly though we may believe that agenda to be. Jesus sets us free from the authority both of sin and of Satan so that he can bring us under his authority, so that he may direct our paths, so that he may send us or leave us precisely where he wants us to go. Jesus has authority over our souls. Have you yielded to that authority? Have you? Is Jesus able to tell you anything this morning and trust that you'll listen and obey? Oh yes, I know that he has all authority in heaven and in earth. And I know that he has authority over your life. And he can actually stop you and make you do what he wants you to do. That's not the question. 
The question is not whether he has authority. The question is, are you yielding to it? How are you responding to his authority? That provides me with an opportunity now to jump to a second and final main heading. The first main heading that we thought about was Jesus' authority. And now secondly, and briefly think with me about our response to Jesus' authority. Three different sets of people witnessed Jesus' actions and Jesus' miracles and Jesus' authority on and beside Lake Galilee that day. Three different sets of people, and each set had a different response. Two of them were good, the other not so good. I want you to look at them with me and see if you see your own reflection in any of these faces beside the lake. First, how did they respond to Jesus? Well, the disciples, verse 25, were amazed. The disciples were amazed. Now, it's certainly true that in the midst of their calamity, verses 22 23 and 24, the disciples weren't amazed. They were afraid. We got that, and we could spend time talking about that. But I think it's more important to notice that after Jesus corrected them for the littleness of their faith, and once Jesus had calmed the storm with a word, once Jesus had demonstrated his authority to them in verse 25, now they were fearful and amazed. They were fearful now, not in the same way that they had been a few minutes prior. They were no longer fearful for their own safety. Now they were fearful with the kind of fear that we usually call awe, or as Luke adds, amazement. Indeed, they said to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? I don't think the disciples here were asking one another this question because they were suddenly uncertain about Jesus' identity. Indeed, he had been making his origins and his identity plain all throughout chapter 7, raising the dead, performing all the signs that the prophets had said that the Messiah would perform. They'd seen all that. And it doesn't seem from their question and from Jesus' lack of rebuke toward their question that the disciples were actually questioning his identity in verse 25. But why did they say, who then is this? That he commands both the wind and the waters and they obey him. Well, it seems to me that the question, who is this, would be akin to a foursome on the golf course, watching one of their number sink 60-foot putt after 60-foot putt after 60-foot putt. If you were there watching that, whether you know anything about golf or not, after three or four holes, you'd begin to look at the other people and say, where did this guy come from anyway? Who is this? He sinks every putt he takes. And that, I think, is what's happening on a much grander scale in verse 25. The disciples actually knew who Jesus was. They knew that he was the Messiah sent from God. But that didn't keep them from being continually amazed and dumbfounded every time they saw a new miracle. It didn't keep them from being continually amazed that he did indeed have power over the waves and the water and the wind and the loaves and the fish and the blind eyes and the dead bodies. Indeed, given all the miracles that these men had already seen Jesus do, it seems remarkable to me that they continued to be fearful and amazed every time a new miracle happened. It's noteworthy that after all their experience with Jesus, they didn't lose their wonder. Their hearts didn't grow lukewarm. After all they'd seen, they were still amazed at what they saw. And that begs the question, what about you, Christian? Many of you who are believers in Jesus have heard the story of this Gerasene demoniac dozens of times. 
Many of you have taken the Lord's Supper hundreds of times. You've seen answered prayer after answered prayer after answered prayer. You've heard the old, old story of Jesus and his love Sunday after Sunday, some of you for decades now. But are you still amazed at Jesus? Does it still flabbergast you that the only begotten Son of God who knew no sin would drag his broken, bleeding body to the trash heap outside Jerusalem, the place called the Skull, and there lay down his life under the wrath of Almighty God for you? Or have you become lukewarm to what you once valued so deeply? The disciples had seen it all before, and yet they were still amazed. What about you? Secondly, the townsfolk were afraid. They were afraid. We see this in verses 34 through 37. Now, the disciples were fearful in verse 25 in the sense that they were in awe of Jesus. But when we find the same adjective used of the townspeople in verses 35 and 37, the word fear now comes with its more typical meaning. When the townspeople from Gerasa saw what Jesus had done with their old friend the demoniac, they became, verse 35, frightened. They became literally scared. Verse 37, they asked him to leave them. This was not awe, this was panic. This was trepidation. The townsfolk were shaking in their boots. But the question is, why? Why would the people of Gerasa have been afraid of Jesus? Surely, he had just shown amazing power and authority, and that might make us afraid. But the power and authority that he had shown had been to make a tormented man well. The power and authority that Jesus had shown were used in the most kind and benevolent of ways. So why were the people afraid? Well, verse 35, I think, tells us exactly why. And the reason is because Jesus indeed had done good to the demoniac. That's why the people were afraid. Read verse 35. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became excited. No. That's what it should read. They praised God, is what it should read. But it says, after they saw what Jesus did, they saw the man sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, they became frightened. Now think with me. Why would the setting free of such a tormented man have caused these people to become frightened? You would think that they would have been either relieved or grateful for this miracle. Instead, they're afraid. What gives? Well, perhaps the town people were thinking to themselves, if Jesus has this kind of authority, if he can make the demoniac into a Christian, what might he do with me? And it may have been precisely that line of reasoning that caused the people to be afraid and to ask Jesus to leave. Perhaps they didn't want Jesus sticking around and using his religious power on them. No, no, I'm just fine on my own. I don't necessarily need Jesus meddling in my life and turning me into a gasp religious fanatic. And there are people just like this today, some of them perhaps in this room. Some of you have seen Jesus work mightily in a friend or in a family member, co-worker, others sitting next to you in the pews. You've seen people be changed dramatically 
by Jesus. Sometimes quickly, sometimes over a long period of time, but you know the change is real. And then perhaps you say to yourself, I'm not sure I want to change dramatically. I kind of like the life I have right now. I mean, I go to church on Sundays. I put a little money in the plate. And certainly I want to go to heaven when I die. But I'm not really sure that I want Jesus to do in me what he's really done in her. I mean, she's here every Sunday at 845 in the morning. And on Wednesday nights too. And if I get that close to Jesus, or if I get too interested in this religious business, God might turn me into a preacher or something. God might start asking me for more of my time. God might ask for more of my energy. If I get too close, no, no, I'm just fine with Jesus at arm's length, close enough to cry out for help when I need him, but not so close that he might turn me into a religious fanatic. Anyone like that in the room this morning? Frightened at what Jesus might do with you if you get too close? Well, let me tell you, Whatever he might do, it would only be good. Isn't that so in this story? Don't you think the demoniac was glad that he got close to Jesus and Jesus got close to him? Don't you think that his life was actually better once he was clothed and in his right mind? I mean, do you think he was running around saying, I used to be able to be free to do whatever I want. I could run around here and act naked and everybody everybody thought it was normal, you know? Or do you think he was going, wow. I never knew it would be like this, but this is good. And don't you think that the good and lovely Jesus would be just as kind to you? Anything that he makes out of you is going to be far better, far more productive, and far more fulfilling than what you now at arm's length have. So trust him. Don't be afraid. Don't ask him to keep his distance. Instead, join the demoniac at his feet. And see if he doesn't do you good. How do we respond to Jesus? Well, the disciples were amazed. The townspeople were afraid. Thirdly, finally, the demoniac was attached. He was attached, verse 38 and verse 39. Where do we find the demon-possessed man at the end of the story? Well, first, in verse 35, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him and loving him. Second, in verse 38, we find him begging that he might accompany him, longing to be a part of what Jesus was doing. And thirdly, we find this new man submitting to Jesus' authority in verse 39. Remember, he wanted to join the traveling evangelism team. But Jesus said, no, 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 I have a better plan for you. In fact, it would be amazing, given the change that's happened in your heart, if you just went back to your normal town and started to tell people, look what happened to me. Let me tell you about the man who did it. Luke tells us that the demoniac, the former demoniac, did exactly what Jesus told him to do. He went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Listening to Jesus, longing to be with him, willing to obey him and speak to others about him. If there are ever a picture of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, this former demoniac is it. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? To be attached to him like this man was. To love his word, to love his presence, to obey his commands even when it counters what you thought you wanted to do, and to spread his fame. That's what the demoniac looks like, and that's what the true Christian looks like. And so I have to ask you, as we close this morning, are you a true Christian?
Are you attached to Jesus? Now, I understand that you're not saved from your sins and that you do not become a Christian by virtue of loving and obeying Jesus. Those things, that forgiveness and that becoming a Christian are granted as a free gift, according to Romans 6.23. I understand that. But if you have been saved by God's free gift, if you have met Jesus as this demoniac did, if he has worked in you the same kind of miracle that he worked in this man, you can't help but be attached to him. And I'm simply asking, are you? Are you attached to Jesus? Is he your everything? If not, you might simply pray this morning that Jesus does for you what he did for this garrison demoniac. You might simply pray that he exercises his authority to make you a holy new creature to cause the old things to pass away and the new things to come. Would you ask him to do that today? Would you ask him to so forgive your sins and so change your heart that you would no longer need to be afraid, but would rather be set free to be amazed by and attached to Jesus? Even now, ask him. And then... Return to your house, return to your workplace, return to your family, return to your school and describe what great things God has done for you.